Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the Odd Job Pod. A uh, quick reminder before the, we start that this isn't a country club, although you're very welcome to make use of our soundproof meditation chamber. Uh, yes, on this podcast, we are talking all things License to Kill, possibly the most uh, 80s, of 80s uh, late 80s, early 90s Bond film within that area. I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of uh, enjoyable discussion around here um we may end up going into a few other uh, potential rabbit holes around certain films that we love but uh license to kill is one that i think there is a lot of love for although potentially not at the initial point when it was made so lots to discuss i'm gary andrews and i'm joined as ever by uh, graham sibley and uh, terry defellin uh, gentlemen how are we both uh we we out of our meditation chambers now we've made our donations Bless your heart, Gary. Yes, we have. <laughs> yes, thank you, Gary. Bless your heart. Although I should stress I am here strictly as an observer. <laughs> <laughs> strictly as an observer. Just come along for the ride. Come along for the ride. <laughs> now, I'll get this out on the table before I start. This is, uh, as as somebody in my uh, early 40s, this is uh, peak teenage boy, I think, uh, viewing. The Bond film out of probably all Bond films that uh, that I grew up with. This is the one that I have much love for um terry how high does license to kill uh feature on your i love it scale yeah i love it i love it on on a very very high scale um i i remember every time i went to see a james bond film for the first time and i remember this one particularly well uh because um i'd heard that it was different and I'd, I'd heard that they'd made a, a few changes. They want to take it in a particular direction. And I'd heard people suggesting that it perhaps it was disappointing because it wasn't sort of what they would consider to be an authentic bond. I went to the picture to see it. I went, to with, I went with Graham to see it. I don't know whether or not it was Graham's first time to go and see it, but it was certainly my first time. And we had a whale of a time all the way through this movie we loved it all the way through and, and couldn't understand how people had a problem with this film. It had all the hallmarks of a classic James Bond. And I think when we got to the um, the drug den, the underground complex, and the fact that there was this ultra-modern, sort of like contemporary, sort of like drug boss, sort of like villain, and he's got his own underground complex. And we thought, this is, a, this is James Bond. This is what James Bond is. You know, like the floor opens up, helicopters fly in. You know, it doesn't get more james bond than that it's uh it's it's it, it was it's it's a classic adventure it is um in many ways quite different but i think that the the, the differences are a lot are cosmetic and it's and it's a hugely enjoyable romp uh and a great james bond made by a great james bond and the only sadness of it is is that it, it's it's sort of you know it didn't hit the right notes commercially i think and so therefore um, it kind of did, did for the franchise for a while, which is a, a shame. So I think that's why it had had a difficult. Has, it has a troublesome legacy, but my understanding is is that it's 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 gone through something of a of a of a, uh, of a revisit, uh, and largely because a lot of its fans for, are now in their forties, and are now in a position to do something about it. They can call podcasts and write articles and tell everybody how wrong they are about this movie in the same way that people have done with Honor Majesty's Secret Service. 
Yeah, it is. It is the uh, on a Majesty's Secret Service for the uh, for the millennial generation. <laughs> um, Graham, as, as Terry said, this wasn't exactly a uh, a big commercial hit at the time. I think when you take into account for inflation, it's uh, probably the least successful of all the James Bond films. Um, can you understand why it didn't necessarily catch fire at the box office? Yeah, I think I can. Thinking back to when it came out. It is right in the middle of a resurgence in the Hollywood action movie. It's at a weird, weird time where we get to the end of the 80s and Hollywood is just starting to get to the idea that video is an opportunity rather than a threat. You've seen a whole decade where there's been very little investment in film because they think they're just not going to get their money back. And yet all of a sudden around this sort of time, you start to see blockbusters coming out and and the and the budgets uh, reflect that. You start seeing films that that, that go over the hundred million mark. Uh, and, and this is one thing that 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 License to Kill uh, that they've always gone back to is to say, look, oh well, you know, it didn't really have that much of, of a of an increase in budget from Moonraker a decade earlier. But it was still it was still quite well financed, this film, compared to other films. But I think you've really got to look at at the contemporaries of its time, films like Die Hard and films like Lethal Weapon. And I think there's a lot that that this film draws on from both of those film franchises, not only the fact that there are people who are in those films who are in this one as well, either in front of the camera or behind the camera. And, And that's where this film sits. And I think that trying to shift the... Bond franchise in with these films, which I'm sure we will go into a lot more depth later on. I think there it, there is an uncomfortable point where where it's a Bond film, so you, you can't go in with these other ones. You can be influenced by them, but if you're thinking that you're going to go th- here and watch Lethal Weapon Two, you're not. Lethal Weapon Two came out seven days before this came out of the cinema which probably explains a lot why American audiences weren't that eager to go and watch another action film one week immediately after they've just watched a very successful franchise. Yeah, for us as Bond fans, we like that progression because we've, we've seen these other films and we think, yeah, well, this is the way that Bond moves forward. So... Uh, I think that there are things in there that if you came to the franchise cold, then yes, you might have a problem. But if uh, for me, I just love it. Terry, it's a re- it's an interesting film as well, because um, in that regard, not only because of the time it's in. And we always talk about James Bond being very much of its time. It's, it's very much kind of magpie of a franchise. It pulls in from lots of different sources and inspiration. Um, This one didn't necessarily have a Fleming source novel, although there were bits that were taken from here and there, Um, which is, is, you know, we're now getting to the stage where there's only so much Fleming they can they can go for. Um, So this really um, didn't have a a kind of had a very different kind of source material. Um, And I'm wondering if also that, you know, obviously they've looked at, at where things were at at the time. And that's also because they've made a very conscious decision not just to place it into the 80s look and feel. I mean, we obviously know Bond has done that before with black exploitation and Kung Fu and that kind of thing. But because there was a little less source material to potentially fall back on for this one, 
it's become a very, very 80s movie, potentially. I mean, I think that um, aficionados of the Fleming novels will recognise bits and bobs from, from there. Milton Crest is from, I can't remember the name of the story that Milton Crest is from. Hildebrand Rarity. The Hildebrand Rarity. Thank you, Graham. Um, and of course, the uh, shark, Felix and the shark, and that it disagreed with something that ate him is straight from the Live and Let Die book spoilers for a 150 year old book there there's quite a bit in there and also interestingly i was watching on my re- my latest rewatch i watched the document the making of documentary and i watched some interviews contemporary interviews with tim dalton at the time and he said that they have made a concerted effort to bring the character back to its fleming roots more so i think than they had done even with living daylights which which as we discussed in the last podcast that they, they had done and and maybe that's one of the reasons why for some people it doesn't quite fix is because it's kind of attempting, it wants to recapture, it wanted to specifically recapture the spirit of the 60s James Bond films, while at the same time wanting to capture the spirit of the current action movie zeitgeist, such as Lethal Weapon, such as Die Hard. That was how they were doing action movies at the time and they wanted to make a movie that was contemporaneous to that. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it doesn't quite sit well. I don't know. When I look at it, because it's such a... Obviously, because where it's set, it's a sun-kissed movie, isn't it? And so it's got that kind of Technicolor, kind of like, you know, early Connery kind of feel to it. It feels like, you know, Doctor No. feels like From Us With Love, you know, From Us With Love in Istanbul anyway, you know. It's just got that, it has got that feel to it um, as well. But then it's sort of, yeah, and then, but then it's got the, the sort of like the Michael Kamen score and it's just, and, it, and, and it's sort of, you know, definitely rocking that 80s, that 80s vibe, which maybe, maybe at the time people just, just, just jarred a little bit with audiences. Well, there's a lot though in there, Graham, that's, that if, um, if the aesthetic and treatment is very, very 80s, as, as you said, there's a lot to ground it in Bond and not least the fact of there are some there's a lot that's in there that really looks back and I guess kind of respects the franchise as well, possibly even more so than than some other films. For example, you've got a returning actor for, for Felix Leiter. You've got a reference to uh, to Tracy. And for anybody who's a Bond aficionado, actually, there's an awful lot that um, I picked up on this round that is a bit bit more sort of clever and was throwing back in a way that's perhaps a little bit more subtle than than some of the other Bond movies have done after. Yeah, certainly. Um, also bringing back David Hedison as as Felix. So I think the first Felix ever to 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 return to the role um, after a break of I think sixteen years was good. It, that that was a really nice touch because every time Felix has been introduced before, it's been a new guy. So it's a, it 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 really has been a roller coaster of, of what's Felix going to be like this time. Yeah, it's usually the same sort of guy of sort of a, a white character actor. Okay, thank God that that, that Casino Royale came along. Uh, maybe Felix will be a woman next time. Who knows? Keep the name Felix. I, mean, I think that'll work. So, so yeah, and obviously, this this film is is also uh, the the end of the road for a lot of them because there was a big gap afterwards uh, with the, the 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 trouble brewing after MGM went completely tits up. Um, uh, uh, some people blame this film on MGM go, going going tit, uh, tits up. 
Um, that that was more of the case that, that the Bond franchise was keeping MGM afloat uh, more than anything else. And because this one didn't do as well, it, it did make three times what 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 it what its budget was. So in in most measures, that would be a success. Um, not the blistering success that we were used to. But it's the last film, I think, with Morris Binder titles in it. And uh, quite a few, last John Glenn film, I think, as well, wasn't it? I think the last one he was involved with. So there is a lot of the old Bond that, that, that comes to an end. And I think this is the last time Cubby Broccoli had a hands-on role in in the film as well. So there is that. Is, is more of a, an immediate end as far as far as the the classic bond is concerned but there is a lot for for, for classic bond lovers to love in this a, a, a big Q uh sequence uh which was great sort of very reminiscent of his role in in octopussy but even more so he got even more screen time in this uh very small amount of m uh, which is quite good because m's a real dick in this film <laughs> i think we can all agree uh, in fact, everyone in British intelligence, apart from Money Penny, who's just a bit weepy and a bit useless, and Q, who, who turns up and is great, is pretty useless. But it introduces us to, to elements that you get in proper spy films in this film, which which I really love about this one. This is what gives it perhaps what you think about more of its of its Fleming nature. The fact that he goes rogue, well, that's okay. That's a bit of an eighties meme. That's a sort of he gets a bit dirty Harry in this. But then again, it also has this whole thing of like, okay, well, you're doing your own thing, but now you're mucking up other people's operations as well. Like like the, the bit with the with the Hong Kong guys in there, which is which is fantastic. It's a lovely little little turn in the film that you think, Oh right, this is what happens when you go rogue. It's uh of course, you know, they all die. Uh, and he gets on and does his his mission, whatever it is, his own self-appointed mission. Okay, okay. Let's not learn any lessons from that. But let's let's just go along with the story and uh, and let you ju- just have a fun time of it. But I think you can look at it and you can see stuff in there that is done better in this film than is done in previous Bond films. Like uh, it's it's actually got decent underwater stuff in it that I don't mind. It's it's got a lot of aerial work in it because those guys that they. They've had since Moonraker. They're they're still brilliant. So uh, so so let's bring those back and do lots more 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 aerial stuff because that really works. And and and, and yeah, uh, it, it's just one thing that I, I've been like on this whole like um, analysis that we've been doing recently, going from Moonraker all the way up here. You just think, man alive, those those guys knew how to do some some pretty pretty impressive stunts, didn't they? They certainly did. Um, Terry, I think if you're talking about the film's strengths, the stunts in here and the set pieces in Licence to Kill are quite stunning, from the wave crest to the, uh, the finale with the oil tanker chase um, to, to, uh, to setting off the explosive toothpaste as well. There is an, there's so much for an action fan to really get into. And and she said they might have been sick at this point uh, of action movies, given how many were out and competing with it at the box office. But um, yeah, as as a stunt movie, as a movie that that relies heavily on its set pieces in a lot of places, um, I I couldn't find any fault with any of the set pieces at all rewatching it again. I was just in a, this is great fun moment when I was watching. 
you think about let's think about the Lethal Weapon movies for as a, as maybe an, an example of the kind of movies that License to Kill was the style of which they were trying to ape. If you think about those movies, they're, they're obviously there were stunts in those movies, but like these movies were kind of like you know shoot out an action kind of like movies. License to Kill is like still classic James Bond scale stunt work. So you know we're talking about lowering people down from helicopters to you know winch winch uh, to steal airplanes you know throwing people out of airplanes you know water skiing without skis you know the tanker chase yeah really very very ambitious uh stunt work by a effectively a put together stunt team that's been working with each other for so many years now that they just know how to do it. They have so much expertise in this area. I think we've we've said in the past that this is rapidly becoming a lost art because CGI, I think, is 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 kind of taking over an awful lot of that stuff. So so that that's sort of where the film really departs from its contemporaries because it is a in that respect it's a it's a classic James Bond film. Um, I mean the 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 the, the opening sequence is like uh, it's really odd because it's got that. He's got like, well, this is weird because you've got like the DEA and all of this, you know, and, and some slow motion shots of DEA agents sort of like carrying their guns around and that. And they're thinking, well, what's going on here? And then it ends with James Bond being lowered down, putting a winch over the back of a plane and then just like, you know, hoisting it away as if he's just caught a barracuda or something like that. You know, it, and it's it, it's and then jumps off and then lands just outside the church. I didn't go in the wedding and you've got the, you know, it's got, it's got all it's got that, that kind of, it's got the contemporary... 80s you know vibe but then it's like also absolutely classic James Bond humor as well uh, that accompanies it as well and maybe that's why it, and maybe that doesn't quite work but it works really really well for me and 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 it's it's a perfect way to kick off this movie and again it, as what I think we've talked about before it, pre-credit six is really really important in telling and in informing the viewer what kind of James Bond film they're in for um, and I, and I think that that works. That that rule applies to License to Kill. I think we get a clear idea about what kind of James Bond we're going to be watching um, for the next couple of hours. Um, and 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 that's a very a sort of like yeah a, a very a, a movie with contemporary themes, but ultimately still a James Bond film. So relax and, and enjoy. Yeah, I think um, Graham from for me as well. You, when you look at a Bond film, and we've discussed this an awful lot. Um, Compared to, say, a film such as uh, Pep's Man with a Golden Gun, which isn't quite sure what it, whether it wants to be a caper movie or a, a spy movie or a, or a kung fu movie or anything in between. Um, this film knows exactly what, it, what, what it's meant to be, um, but also adds an element in there which um, is probably a little bit more unusual. And this is uh, potentially why... Some people might look at it in a similar vein to on a Manchester Secret Service in that you actually take Bond out of um, his, I guess, day to day, his day job. And you actually start to see a little bit more of his life and his emotions, which obviously isn't really something that uh, that really Bond did that much or hadn't done for quite a long time um, and then didn't really do again until you get into the Craig era. I think you look at this this film. Well, I look at this film, uh, and I see a, a, one of the best plots in in any Bond film. It's probably the most intriguing plot you've seen since From Russia with Love. 
it is a very involved film. So for me, I was just sucked into it. And the casting of it is brilliant. There aren't any really big names here. Benicio Del Toro is not going to become big for a few years. And you've got Robert Davi, who's really just a character actor at the time and, and really has, hasn't really gone on to, to, do, to do much more. I mean, those are very, very familiar face. But they come together in this that, and, and they produce something that, that, that I think it stands up with all of these, all of the action films that, you've, that, that are around at the time that you've forgotten about. But they stand up with all the action films that have gone on and been remembered well, that do have big actors in them. One of the problems is, though, with License to Kill is that while the plot is amazing, the script is a bit clunky and i think dalton still isn't really in tune with the role and 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 for me anyway i think that there is people who love this film and i will count terry here amongst them i think he's filling in a lot of gaps sometimes with with dalton because there are obvious flaws with with his portrayal of bond but I, I can I can let him get away with it because in the two films he has played, they are he's he's brought something else and he's tried to twist it. But I think the franchise is dragging him down in this. If this was if this was made by the guys who made Never Say Never Again, I think you see a completely different film. In many ways, you're seeing a film you're seeing films that are being made for Pierce Brosnan, but I think Dalton did them better. I can't see Brosnan in either of these films. It's almost as if the franchise is almost saying, oh, we didn't get Brosnan. Now we've got this guy. And now we don't know what to do with him. But it's, um, I, th- I think he was let down a bit by the script. But I think you can say that a lot about the Maybound Wilson films, that, that they, they haven't got the, the, the sort of script that you're seeing in films like Beverly Hills Cop, Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, which, which, are, which zing. And and I think this is why it didn't do so well in the box office, I think. Needs more Chris Wood then. Needs a hell of a lot more wood. <laughs> um, yeah, Terry, it's always interesting when we start going, well, how could you do any of the other Bonds fit into here? Um, and I kind of have a feeling that if this had, uh, you know, in, in an alternative universe where License to Kill had never been made, but then was made and came back, came as a, a script within the Craig era, I think it potentially would have been, um, you know, maybe it was about 20, 30 years actually too early for where the franchise needed to be um, as a as a concept, because you're, you're there, you've got something that is a lot more, um, probably a lot more darker than a lot of other films, because yeah, Bond is going rogue. There is a lot more cold calculating death in there. Um, there's a lot that is less um, giant world peril um, at this stage and a lot more really set into what is actually quite a, a realistic setting in a lot of places other than obviously a giant meditation chapel um, as your, your villain's lair. But yeah, this is this is a Bond film and I wonder if it's had a little bit of a, um, a renaissance as well with the Craig era essentially doing to a certain extent what I think Dalton was trying to do back at License to Kill. But as Graham said, you know, even though the film holds up incredibly well, potentially Dalton was doing things that the franchise itself wasn't quite ready for. Yeah, I mean, just returning to the what Graham was saying about the script, I think he's, he's, he's right. I don't think the script writers knew quite how to handle Tim's handling of the dialogue because he's not necessarily someone who 
might lend himself to sort of like maybe the lighter side of things, the one-liners, the quips, which would have been, you know, again, I mean, like as you know, those contemporary, you know, the rival films at the time had plenty of humour in them, plenty of emotion in them as well, to be fair. Uh, but I think this is where you've got license to be able to have emotional characters and flawed characters and, and, and stuff like that. And you can you could bring that in. And, and if you're not entirely certain what you're supposed to be doing, you know, in terms of dialogue with the with 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 the actor and the character, then, yeah, that 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 is clearly an issue. And, and certainly if you were to replace Tim Dalton with if you were to if you were to take out Daniel Craig and replace him with Tim Dalton for the movies that he's made, then I mean, I think that Tim would have been absolutely fine in those movies. I think they, you know, and and so, yeah, I don't think you're the first person. In fact, I think when we did a short podcast with uh, Rich Nelson after having gone to see uh, License to Kill at the Prince Charles, I think we made a similar observation. This film was not ahead of its time, but perhaps a portent for what what, what James Bond would become. And that is... Yeah, probably far more serious in outlook in terms of its dialogue. Uh, not that there's not any humour in the modern movies, that's not true, but the kind of obvious sight gags and stuff like that tend not to be. You know, there's still there's still something of that kind of Roger Moore playfulness about these movies. And that's hardly surprising because of the huge legacy that, that, that he left. And I'm, and you you wonder what would have happened if Tim had stuck around and they'd carried on making movies and whether or not they would have been a little bit, they'd have had this break as well because of all the shenanigans that went on and what would have happened, whether or not they would have improved those movies over time and, and, and settled in with, with, with Tim a lot more. But yeah, I mean, it is, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting point about the dialogue. I had must confess, I hadn't given that too much thought and, but it is quite pedestrian, um, isn't it? Um, when it comes down to it, um, and that's that. That that's a shame. <clears throat> where where for me it does shine. Um, yeah, the dialogue is a bit clunky. Um, so, but there's certain um, two handers when you you have the actors together. Um, and Graham, I think one thing for me that really really makes this film work perfectly. In, in my view, is just the interplay between Dalton and Davy. There, when those two are on screen, there is just a li- there's a frisson of excitement, danger, menace. There's there's so much in there, and um, yeah, well, some bits can can drag a little bit dialogue wise. Put those two on screen, and I could watch them together for much much longer than they've got screen time. Oh well, well certainly. I mean the. Uh... If 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 the script isn't that great, then 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 filling in with charisma will help. Um, Robert Davy just has so much charisma when it comes to this role, and he loves it. You can see that that he absolutely loves every minute of being there. He this is the guy who who not only that just turned up, did his lines, and went home again. This is the guy who got involved in this film. He actually played Bond. In the screen tests for both uh, Carrie Lowell and uh, Talisa uh, Soto as well, so so he it, they they actually acted out uh, a scene from View to a Kill, so uh, uh, between between the two of them, and and so you know this is the guy who got really into it. He's actually got a really good English accent as well, <laughs> believably. So. <laughs> uh, uh, 
And so you can see he's so invested in that. And so he delivers one of the very best villains in the whole franchise. Uh, they're, 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 since after Telly Savalas, there was a couple of decades where there was barely a decent villain amongst a lot of them, really. Uh, probably Yafet Koto came closest, I would imagine. But but really, there was a lot of them there that were just turning up. Yep, thanks very much. <laughs> See you later. I'm out of here. Um, but he comes along and, and, and really does deliver a villain that, that, that really knocks a lot of the villains in, the other, in those other films out of the park. If you want camp, go to Die Hard. <laughs> go to Hans Gruber. <laughs> he is, he's, he's more camp than you've seen in most Bond, film, Bond villains uh, for, 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 for decades. So I, I think Robert Davy and he's, of course, on screen with 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 uh, Timothy Dalton. Timothy Dalton is not going to be outacted by anyone in in this film, and but they bring such a nice edge to it. They knew that they don't have to go over the top, and so when the two of them are together, there's no overplay in this, and and it works so well. Yeah, it's um it's one of the joys of of this as well. Um, and you know we'll stick a little bit in the era as well, Terry, because. You have got that element with um, this particular bond as well, that there is a lot more um, because of, I guess, where the contemporary audiences were. This is also a pretty violent Bond film and also one that um, because of necessities of, of where the um, where the world is, you know, certain traditional threats are, are receding. A little bit um, and we've talked about the problems that that actually created for Pierce Brosnan in here as well the um, the writers are, are clearly know in terms of how they're placing it where the threats are and that realism that comes in is is something that's a bit different because it's so clearly set um, in a very contemporary setting as opposed to going back for the mad Russian generals which equally we know in in uh, Living Daylights, they managed to handle relatively well as well. I think the story was that they wanted to they wanted to target and prioritise the US audience, and so they went for issues that were pressing to to and of particular importance to the United States, and that's the sort of Noriega kind of kind of thing, then and the kind of drug cartels of South America, and then base a story around that and build a Bond villain around that. And Graham's quite right to point out that they, they did a, a excellent job doing so and, and, and casted it cast it beautifully. Just a, a quick aside, we talk about dialogue, but the you know problem solver, problem eliminator line is absolutely superb and brilliantly delivered and very funny. Uh, so funny that even the actors had to, well, had to laugh at it. It feels in that respect more like a kind of contemporary 80s thriller, action thriller. So I'm thinking about Hans Gruber and I'm thinking what a what a Bond villain he would have been, you know, I mean, absolutely <laughs> superb. And how they, that, you know, how Bond influences other movies and then in turn influences them back, you know. But I mean, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't change that for all the world, but I mean, Die Hard is just basically is a James Bond film, isn't it? Only with a bit of like that kind of Hitchcockian sort of like, well, what the hell am I, am I doing here? Kind of, you know, 
John McClane, although he's a cop, is just like a guy, basically, who just happens upon this thing rather than a secret agent. Well, it's interesting you say it, Terry, but that was a lot of the the way that, that the films were going, especially for the US audience. And I think that's probably why Bond perhaps wasn't as brought in to that fold, because all those films that had been coming out pretty much since Dirty Harry, but all of that action movie sort of role was every man's. They, they were they were they were blue collar yeah. heroes. They were your average cop. Um, they're either in, as you say, in Beverly Hills Cop or or in Die Hard or in Lethal or, Weapon or damaged goods like the guy in Lethal Weapon who yeah. lived in a trailer yeah. park, but he was like you know you know mental massive PTSD from from the yeah. war. I think if I remember rightly and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah. no, totally. Whereas and and also yeah, and especially as well feeds into that post Vietnam thing as well. So, which as well was 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 being um, was being explored as well in the in, in in the late eighties, and it wasn't about suave guys in tuxedos going into casinos and just hanging out in the most swankiest places. You don't see a lot of that in 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 this film. He does go to a casino. He does put on the tux, and and yes, he does he does get to schmooze with some women in in very ridiculous dresses, but. There, there is there is that thing that that says right okay this is a bond film this isn't your action film that you're that you're really enjoying at the moment all these other ones so that sets it apart but also as well maybe sets everything out of kilter a bit because it isn't that sort of there isn't that earthiness about it there's almost terry a natural um follow-on which i think is almost an inevitability that we have to uh to talk about as well in that when you look at the where um, Graham's just talked about the the everyman that sits within there, and then also the uh, the the Bond and the re- slightly still ridiculous action bit. Um, there's one film that it all points towards, and that's True Lies. This yeah. is the, this is the film that basically is the stopgap for Bond fans between License to Kill and Goldeneye. Yeah, absolutely. And how many times are we, are we should we should probably actually do a a, a, a podcast dedicated to True Lies because we've referenced it enough time. Um, down the years. It was the wake-up call for the Bond franchise and said, look, we're putting it up a notch. I remember Graham talking to me about, before I'd seen it, he went to see it at the pictures and he came back and he said, some of the stunt work on that film is amazing. And just like everything that they're doing this film, is just like so much better than like what we've seen before on James Bond. And I went and saw it myself and I was just completely blown away. A lot of this, of course, is James Cameron's expertise as a filmmaker. It's amazing they never did a sequel to that. And True Lies is definitely up there with, with one of my favourites. I, I would suspect if uh, if you like Bond but say that you don't like True Lies, I frankly don't believe you. And I, <laughs> I question your commitment to uh, to the Bond franchise. Uh, it's, like, it's, like saying you don't, it's like saying you don't like The Rock. You like yeah. Bond, but you don't like The Rock. I mean, like, why would you not like a James Bond film? Like, yeah, you you may say that, you know, <clears throat> you like Bond and don't like The Rock, but you would be uh, severely wrong. Not just not just a wrong opinion. You're just wrong. You're not allowed to have any opinions if you don't like The Rock, in my view. Um, Graham, as well, one thing that um, you obviously talked about this, the script as well. And we've talked about the, the fact it's cast really well. How do you feel that um, a lot of the supporting cast works with Bond because you have got um again you've got a couple of slightly different characters in in the Bond girls there whereas all all the other you know obviously we've got a great villain but yeah when you start kind of looking at supporting roles do you how do you feel they match up to other films perfectly well actually I think um 
if you're going to look at Carrie Lowell and compare her to to the departed Tanya Roberts, I think Carrie Lowell brings a lot more to to it. I think she's she she's she's fine in that. She she is a perfect um, late eighties, early nineties uh, female lead in in the film. Um, <clears throat> Talisa Soto is pretty much the uh, the the very elegant victim in here, and Bond very very Bond films very very rarely handle uh, women like her well. The good thing about this is that she doesn't end up dead, and in pretty much every other Bond film, that's what she would be. She would have been killed pretty much before the halfway point. In which case. I think she does perfectly well there. I think there is that it's nice having some kind of frisson there, but um, with I, I think it, it's probably um, Pam's character. Well, it's it's Pam that, that that is seeing seeing the problem there with with the the sort of like the three way relationship there, um, and uh, and I think uh, Lupe just doesn't see it at all. She doesn't see her as a, as a, as any kind of threat, which which I think is is quite is quite good. Uh, I think it's something we haven't seen before in a Bond film. I really like Carrie Lowell in this film. Though I think perhaps she hit me at a right, quite the right time. Uh, and uh, yes, yeah, um, I was watching it still as a as a man now in my fifties, thinking, "What a charming young lady she is." <laughs> she's got she's got a cracking pair of legs, says Carrie. <laughs> my God, I don't mean yeah. to get earthy. Uh, I try not to get earthy when 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 discussing. <laughs> Bond girls, but my goodness, what a woman she is! When she first turns up in that bar, and she's got that shotgun underneath. It's just like really good. She's she's so so good. I like Loopy, and I think you're right, Graham. I think it's I think I think if you know, I mean, I think you think of Loopy, you think about the um the abused lover of a Bond film, and you imagine that they're likely to get turned turn up dead. Um, like yeah. um, is it um Andrea in um in the Man with the Golden Gun, for example? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a measure of how the franchise had moved on by that point, and 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 had written, I think, what are pretty actually decent and responsible female character character roles. Um, I think that Pam wasn't annoyed that, that that James had slept with Loopy because she was in love with James or anything like that. I think it was a, a, a believable reaction, isn't it? I think that's what it yeah. is, and I think that's what what helps. I think that that's what she brings across. So and yeah. and and yeah, she doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to put down time, Tanya Roberts, but but she she comes in here with a pretty similar role, and uh, and yet she she delivers it in a completely different way. Um, not saying that she's like some amazing actress or anything like that, but she comes in and does a Bond girl really well. <laughs> she's, it, it, she's an actress of distinction, and went on and did a lot of TV work, and and has done. Yeah. I think she was in Law and Order for a long, long time. I think she's she's she she, she knows how to. She's she's good. She's she's good at it. But yeah, early on in her career, and uh, and yeah. it could have gone either way. But yeah, I mean, she's she owned the role and did what was what was it, and and seemed and she enjoyed it, and she enjoyed. She clearly she's like um, uh, Holly Goodhead. She 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 enjoyed the idea of having sex with men. <laughs> like thought, yeah, okay, I can do this. You know, there was no there's no side to it, no strings to it, or anything like that. Uh, and and there was a professional as well. Um, and and really good. And the, I think the bedroom scene with the with um, Professor Joe is <laughs> sensational <laughs> and, and, and just so 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 good. I mean, it, it, I've just 
perhaps just maybe sort of like, you know, thinking about our earlier remarks about dialogue uh, and then just remembering that perhaps we're probably that I think is a fair criticism of some of the Tim's dialogue. But actually, I think for the for the ensemble, it, yeah. it, 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 it's a different story. And that's the other thing about the movie, of course, isn't it? Is it's develops that kind of ensemble. You've got Pam and Q and James all kind of working together yeah. um, to get thing to get things going. Uh, yeah. And, 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 and that's that's quite Craig era, isn't it? Oh, certainly. It certainly leads you up to the whole sort of Craig, uh, Craig era. And, and interesting as well, when, when people say about how violent this film is, if you compare it to the opening sequence of Casino Royale, and this is not very violent, this film. <laughs> well, they did no. cut out 38 seconds of violence, so we don't know how violent this film actually was. Because it got a 15, didn't it? And It, it and... got a 15. It would have got an 18, yeah. Again, you've kind of got shifting tastes in there, and and some of the violence. I mean, it's <clears throat> it's very key keeping where where Bond is. Um, you know, the the death of Milton Crest is is particularly horrific, but at the same point, it's actually no different than some fairly gruesome deaths that assorted other henchmen have fallen to or or experienced in uh, in previous films, just done with a lot less cartoonish violence around it and done with fairly actual unpleasant elements to it, although it's a wonderful piece of uh, 80s puppetry work that you can see in the uh, the exploding head once uh, when it actually gets there. But no, I think there's a, a lot that, that's around it. And um Graham, to almost kind of go the other way, we we said that we could see uh, see Tim in in the Craig era films. Um, how would you have felt if if this had been a Craig film? Uh, wait, when are we making this? Are we uh, is this still in the in in the late eighties, or are we talking in 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 the uh, in in the last uh, decade? I would say late eighties with with Craig parachuted back in time. To, parachuted uh, back in time. I I think it would be a very similar film. I think he would. I, I, even at the time, yeah, I think he would have he would have gone uh, with the same interpretation as Dalton, uh, and and I think as well he would have reacted with the with the uh, with the actors around him, um, and and brought out the same the, the a similar sort of result. I think I think Tim Dalton's strength in this, as as we've we've said throughout this, is is the is how he does with his other actors on the screen. Uh, he does really well with Desmond Llewellyn as well I think I think that the, the two of them have a great screen presence together and I, I think because Desmond Llewellyn is great we love him but you know he, he he ain't the best actor in the world is he let's face it um the but he turns up and he does cue brilliantly so that's all we need from him uh and when he's asked to do a bit more he does it and i think it's great and I, I love the fact that that he's obviously brought the stuff that he can nick out of the office that no one will miss so this really battered old alarm clock and this 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 toothpaste tube is it right okay this is the stuff i can take on my holidays that, that no one's gonna gonna actually miss here so i love that that sort of ropiness about it it's uh it's it's wonderful i love how he managed to get all that stuff into isthmus city <laughs> the security I mean, at isthmus city airport is not clearly, good yeah he must have uh, maybe made some special payment but uh but yeah they're and of course because q as we said in the last podcast arguably q's best ever line is this in this movie certainly his best ever gag is in this movie and that's the exploding exploding alarm clock uh, line which, uh, which 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 is one of the great classics but i also love his 
it should actually have been his final scene actually because because he comes back for the for the very very end but um his final scene in the movie from from my is is when he's disguised as the street sweeper <laughs> he's got that straw hat and that and that moustache and then he's like when he goes right over and out and then he just like chucks it away throws away his hat and just walks off and says, right that's me done Peace out, guys. I mean, as if as if he's just clocked off. A literal mic drop, isn't it? It's, it it's is. <laughs> but it's a fantastic. The thing, and of course, if you're a Bond fan, you know he's always banging on about bringing back the the the, 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 the equipment. <laughs> and there he is, just uh, that's it. That's that done. <laughs> this is what happens when you. But this is what happens when you work in the field. Q is that yeah, yeah. yeah for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is by far and away the, one of the pleasures of this film is is more Desmond Llewellyn in there. And we've talked about you know the interplay as well, and you can just tell as well in this particular film there is so much chemistry because you've got those scenes between Carrie Lowell and um, and Desmond Llewellyn as well, and you can tell that there seems to even in a short time like the affection that those two have kind of built up together. It seems to be quite genuine it doesn't feel like there's anything forced and you're getting into the um the tropes of oh james which continually prop up and and can be a bit bit of um a downer at, at times that one doesn't really appear too much and it's i mean this is is a different bond film but it's also a really really refreshing one as well um especially if um i mean i can understand why people didn't necessarily uh connect with it especially because it is such this is such a big tonal shift from where Moore was in in his last couple of roles or um it's it's totally shifted into a different area and we talked about um living daylights how that one actually it had a lot of hangover from roger in within the living daylights and this is is definitely you know this is definitely tim's movie even if the, the writers and um, and Dalton haven't quite got together. So there's a there's a big tonal shift in here. Um, Graham, how much do you think that that um, I guess both affected the legacy of the film, but also the legacy of then what we saw when the legal wranglings were finished and uh, and Goldeneye came on the scene. I guess in some other universe there is the property of a lady, 1991, starring Timothy Dalton. Uh, it, it's there and it's a two-hour film and it's a roaring success. I, I don't know what else happens in that universe, but somewhere out there it, it, it's there. And how would that? Would he have gone on to do Goldeneye? Would that have been his fourth film or would that have been his fifth film? Because it was, it was a hell of a long break, wasn't there, between between them. It, it's difficult to tell because what it is such a, an end point, I think, I suppose it's difficult for modern Bond fans to conceive the the gap there, especially now when you think, well, the late Craig films had quite a big gap in between them. But we were used to films coming out, Bond films coming out every two years back then. Uh, and if yeah. you waited a bit longer for that, you were you were getting itchy. By the time Goldeneye comes out, we're ready for a Bond film. And the thing is, so much has gone on in those seven years the cold war has ended you've got films like true lies and true lies a film with i think i think that had a hundred million dollar budget as well three times what they'd given this film and obviously they come out with a film that that is huge you're starting to see as well by the time the golden comes out the these other action movies have gone through that whole franchise thing 
franchises seem to be quite uh, a thing that, that Hollywood now has taken on board. It's still a way be- before they get to Mission Impossible, I think, isn't it? When when did Mission when did that first Mission Impossible film come? Ninety seven. Ninety seven. So so yeah. Perhaps. Yeah, but it's it, it's coming into that sort of area era, mm. isn't it? And I think as well, because you've had with this one as well, you've got a lot of people that are coming up to who have been involved with the Bond franchise for 20 years. So they've been there throughout the whole of the Moore era and they've been there now with the new boy. And I think a lot of that goes by the time you get to, to, to Goldeneye because there's such a big gap. And of course, now when, when it comes to Goldeneye, then it's really... Wilson and Barbara Broccoli's baby from then on. And so it, it's it's really a new franchise almost, really. Not rebooted. Doesn't start with the same confidence as Casino Royale does. I think you see they've done things in Licence to Kill that they think, right, okay, this works. We'll do this. These characters work. We've done this. And people people may not like this film, but they don't like it because of that. So let's keep that in there. Let's Let's do more of that. I think that amongst the Bond producers, I think that they all look at this film and they think, yeah, we got it right on that film, as far as the franchise is concerned. As far as the film at, of its time is concerned, maybe we didn't. Maybe there were some things we could have done differently. As far as the development tool is concerned, this, this, this works really well because it stands up on its own. It stands up perfectly well on its own and it allows you to go to move forward which you can't say that with a lot of Bond films. No, I, I think I think it, it, it's definitely a it's definitely has a similar sliding doors feel about it than On the Majesty's Secret Service has. If George Lazenby stays on On the Majesty's Secret Service and does Diamonds Are Forever, then the, the franchise goes in a in a quite different direction. Uh, Licence to Kill is is a Tim Dalton film more than Licence to Kill Living Daylights is. I think Living Daylights is a more of a Roger Moore film but with a different actor. Whereas this, I think, is much more of Tim Dalton's got more of his stamp on it, even though it isn't what we would necessarily call a full transition, despite everything that we've we've said. Then Kim Dalton carries on making James Bond films, like, yeah, like, you know, Property of a Lady 1991. It becomes more like that. Things change a bit. They probably go back to Pinewood, hopefully, because they can film it back on Pinewood, which they didn't do in this one. And and there are maybe they put some more money into it, and it goes in a very different, in a different, well, not a very different direction because it's James Bond after all. But it goes in a different direction to what would have happened. And Tim, and who knows, Tim might have done maybe four or five movies. Who knows? But but that's not what happened. MGM ran into problems, and by that point, Tim, it's reported that Tim was offered the role back, but said no. But I don't know. It, 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 they, they've they've had this thing for Pierce for so long now that you know that it felt like it was. It certainly was the right time for Pierce, I think, to join the franchise. So so I think it is a massive sliding doors moment, and it is a junction point between one kind of movie, James Bond movie, that they've stopped making, you know, and 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 moving on to a to a new type of Bond film. And again, obviously, Cubby's uh, involvement in the franchise by this point massively taking a step back. I mean, he had not much to do with this movie on set because, unfortunately, the Mexico Air didn't agree with him and he got quite unwell while he was out there filming and he had to go home. Um, and so was absent for, for, mu- for, for much of the shooting. 
uh, in Mexico. So, so again, you know, these 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 transitions happening. But yes, in so far as you can characterize these kind of things, then that's 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 what this movie is. It's a it's a definitely a, a turning point in the franchise. And Graham, how much do you think that um, the time that the producers, so Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson, um, and the team that they are assembling um, on on Bond um, in the run up to Brosnan, how much do you think it kind of played on their mind um, that this one hadn't necessarily been as as critically and commercially successful? Because again, you've got a big tonal shift as well from from Dalton to Brosnan, um, and very different type of bond again um you know how much do you think that license to kills yeah as terry said sliding doors point or the, the coder in there influenced where the franchise then went with the the brosnan films i think it was probably remembered quite favorably michael g wilson obviously co-wrote this one and i think he's quite pleased with it really he borrowed uh, quite strongly from uh, from kurosawa's yojimbo which also was remade as a fistful of dollars and it does have a very strong plot in this film and i think that as far as he would be concerned this is a good film and it made money so why not continue doing it i think there are plenty of easy reasons why you can mark this out and say why it's not as successful as other other bond films but i think you look at this and you think well it survived a heavy period of action films, ones that were coming for it. People had looked at the Bond franchise and think, why can't we do, do, do a franchise film? And so loads of people were trying to do this. And they spent years and years going back to the 60s trying to do what the Bond, film, the Bond films did. The Bond films are the only one that's still standing. The only thing that has ever come close to doing it is what we've got now with the, with the Marvel Comics universe. That's the only time that the 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 really in the last fifty years you've got to go back to the forties and like Tarzan and Sherlock Holmes before you reach something that had that longevity that 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 the Bond franchise has got and what well, nothing nothing has got the longevity of the Bond fran- franchise. Of course, looking back at it now, it is like halfway. This is on the on the journey that we're currently on with Bond. Bond is currently in its sixtieth year, and this was. Well, Bond was what thirty. Well, wasn't even thirty when this when this came out. So the thirtieth birthday of, of Bond happened between those two films, and uh, so I think it's Living Daylights. As far as we're concerned now, in a, in a historical perspective, you look at it and think, well, this is the end of old Bond, and afterwards you now you've got new Bond, and of course it it comes in with things like the end of the Cold War, so different and changing in attitudes when you go into the nineties and things like that. But I I think that that there is enough left from 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 License to Kill to to move forward and to to bring forward even to today you can you can go back and you can pick things out that you can say well that would fit in a in a film that that you you left out that you brought out tomorrow you could look at, at, at robert davy and you can say well you know yeah, yeah he would he would be he would have been an excellent villain in no time to die remy malik and and robert davy i think i think they approached their villains very very in a very similar way didn't they i think so anyway. yeah 
and, and, and drugs, drugs corruption. corruption. Yeah, you know, he's not gone anywhere. He's not gone anywhere. It definitely feel. I mean, yeah, some of the some of the plots um, from shall we say the Roger era. Um, whilst we might have enjoyed the films, they don't necessarily hold up to too much scrutiny um, as we've we've seen in the podcast in the past. But this one does. Um, Gary, no, there's, there's nothing, nothing wrong, wrong with, with building, building an enormous, an enormous space, space station, orbiting space, space station, station and, and seeking to destroy, to destroy the, entire the entire world through, through uh, by, by, by utilizing some flour from, from South America. America. That's, that's perfectly prominent. It's, it's, it, that, that would hold up now. Yep. Totally. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, there is, um, uh, as we said in there, um, that Bond film knows exactly what it wants to be. <laughs> It's that a Moonraker definitely doesn't want to be licensed to kill. <laughs> that is absolutely sure. <laughs> um, so I guess as we come to kind of wrapping this up, and, and we if we've done, you know, a few years ago we did the World Cup of Bonds, and and we've all got our own, you know, sort of personal ranking within the films as to where they kind of sit within our our kind of enjoyment or, or kind of which ones we think are, are the uh, are the best in, in our mind, if not necessarily as a collective. Uh, Terry, where does this one kind of sit for you as a, as when you're looking across the whole of the Bond canon? Um, is this top 10, even top five? It is definitely top 10 and it's possibly top five. Um, it's one of my most watched James Bond films, I think, but I don't know. It is very difficult because there's, fag papers and also there's 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 by james bond movies that i had previously been down on which i've since welcomed back um into my world and so it, it's it's pretty congested up there it's pretty tight at the top so i couldn't say for certain but it it, it ranks among my favorite james bond and or, or that is to say it is comfortably a movie that if i switch over to itv4 and it happens to be starting then that's me for the next two hours it's which is almost about uh, as as close as you can get to a five star review of Bond <laughs> on ITV for not turning the channel. <laughs> <laughs> um, Graham, for you, you've obviously, um, you know, you did the whole Bond franchise from start to finish um, during lockdown, and um, you know, some as as you said, you've you've reacquainted yourselves with, and some have not got any better with the with watches after that. Um, when you were going through the whole of, of the Bonds back to back, um, how did Licence to Kill kind of sit with you overall as, as part of uh, an enjoyment of the Bond canon? It did well. I, I don't watch this film as much as Terry does. It's probably one that when I did my watch through, I, I looked at it, I thought, I probably haven't watched this in about a decade which was a long time for me. But that's because there's a lot of Bond films there and, I, and and because I didn't actually make myself sit down and watch them apart from if I was going to talk about them with you guys. And and it, it, it became one that I would ignore. And I don't know why. I think it, it, it might be because it, it just gets lost in that sort of late 80s, early 90s action film thing. And, and I may have told myself that it's not, really a bond film it's like something trying to be one of these action blockbusters which which i think does it a disservice because it is a good bond film it has although it, it, it is him going you know off the grid it is a great bond film whether it stands in my top 10 i think if it does it probably only just about sneaks in it is probably 
happily top half, I'd say. So I'd say somewhere around that 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 sort of area. Um, it, it's not in the top five. I don't think I don't think I've ever thought of it that well for it to to live in my top five. Uh, but yeah, like Terry, ITV four. Yeah, even if it's an hour in. Yeah, well, that's fine. I'll just go to bed an hour later. Yeah, it's for me, as, as I said, this is a film which um, very much is the one that I grew up with um, because it was on TV a fair bit. It was relatively new and, and contemporary and easy to, I guess, easy to access um, as, as somebody growing up in the um, growing up into the 90s. So this was the one where everybody's kind of got their starting point. Um, and mine was probably around kind of Dalton as much as anything else. And, you know, they are, because they both Dalton films hold up really well and they stand up really well um, to repeat viewings. I've, I've watched them a lot. And as you're a kid, you know, teenager growing up and it's got everything that you need from an action film. There is really um, very little that if you were to kind of break down the essence of what makes a good action film, this has everything and it's going to keep you going all the way through, which um, has, sometimes isn't always something you can say about some of the Bond films. So this is certainly one that um, I think of really strongly. I don't, it might just squeak into the top five, but for me, this is is definitely top 10. It's a film that um, I enjoy and have a lot of time for. And yeah, like Terry, um, if it was on, um, which I think over here is, is Nine Gem, is the equivalent of uh, ITV4 over here, um, you will absolutely get me watching that um and yeah that's it i'm i'm gone for the next couple of hours whereas if i flicked it over and let's say for example uh diamonds of forever's there um i will probably watch it but i might fall asleep during it or i might just kind of wander off midway through to fix myself a drink or or something like that so yeah i mean i think if you're looking at the objective rankings in there it's there's certain various bits that you can put in the scale which are less one to ten and more will i fall asleep can i take a toilet break without necessarily having to pause what i'm watching into here um do i get distracted by something else there's all those various bits to just are you sat on the edge of your seat and it's impossible to to ignore this because it has cracks along at such a good pace as well it's not overblown it's tight it's lean and yeah for me license to kill is um, and I think that you could make a very good argument. And those people who have this one as their favorite, I think have probably made quite a good choice as opposed to anybody who potentially has uh, some of our other ones. I know um, at this point we may have uh, the, our regular listeners who fall into the Thunderbolt fan club might be sat there about to fire off a very, very angry tweet. They're long gone. They are long gone. <laughs> we, we, we saw off the Thunderbolt fans, I'm afraid. We've lost them. <laughs> and this and to one last thing as Graham mentioned good underwater sequences the underwater sequences here blow Thunderbolt out of the water they are just superb as well so uh, yeah if Thunderbolt had jet skiing uh, with no jet skis then uh, who knows we might have looked at it slightly more favourably but uh, there we go um, so yes this is the, the brief Dalton um, interlude uh, has been done um, we hope that you've enjoyed it, listeners. Um, please do. If you haven't, um, if you haven't watched *License to Kill* in quite a long time, such as Graham, um, do go back. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. 
And uh, if you if you want to listen to us a bit more, if you want to leave us a really nice review, please do go leave us a review. Rate us on the your podcast platform of choice. Subscribe to us through the podcast platform of choice. Um, and if you're one of the uh, the Thunderbolt fans who is hung into the bitter end because you like hearing people's opinions on the internet that make you angry, um, then obviously you can fire a tweet at us um, as well at OddJobPod. Um, but yeah. James Bond will be back. We might go off and watch The Rock and True Lies um, while we figure out our next move, but The Odd Job Pod will be back. Um, It just remains for me to say thank you very much, Terry. Thank you, Gary. And thank you very much, Graham. Thank you, Gary. And thank you, dear listener. And uh, The Odd Job Pod will be back. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bless your heart.